0: It's really great to have you with us. Um, we're about to start a series called Big Objections, which will be punctuated by guest speakers. Uh, so it, I don't know how long it will last. The, the aim of the exercise was for, to, to get you to, to try and talk to your friends uh, about different sort of issues. Matt Little gave me a card. It, it just said on it, science. So that is the one card that is the basis of this week. Uh, so, so what I've done is I've cheated I actually got an email from a group called Acts 29 that did a survey about big objections. I got that through about, well, I don't know, four or five weeks ago. And also a, a friend of mine or a church, a New Frontiers church in Eastbourne, had also done a survey. And this is their results. There, The church is King's Church, Eastbourne. But uh, these are their objections. So objects, 14% of people were unhappy with church. If I'm in my wife, uh, asked somebody and they said, well, I just can't be bothered. Or they're a bunch of hypocrites. So that's that kind of one. People about is the Bible reliable? Uh, What about suffering? Uh, The character of God? Isn't God a mean, nasty, horrible person like sends people to hell? Um, What's what there's no evidence? And then there's the big kind of hot potatoes. In fact, I had a a text from somebody, I think she's I can't see her, but saying that she spoke to her friends and, and they said, well, the big issue is what about homosexuality and God's. Obviously completely obsessed with sex, not that society is at all, it's God's problem. Evil, world religions, is Jesus the only way to God? Science, and then we work down to atheism, hell, and others. So what I'm doing, if you want to get one of these up on the list, I'd like a real card from a real person in (laughs) children. So I'm preparing them as we go. So I prepared this based on the one card that said science. I am going to do something on sex and sexuality, but I'm not going to do it next week. So, at the moment, it feels like hell or suffering might be up there next week. I was going to do that at the dedication, but I didn't think that would go down well with the visitors. Okay, so, so this week, it's, um, has science buried God? And I really need to crack on, because I've got loads of stuff to say. Um, let me just make an apology. If you're really, really good at science, can I apologize? Because you're going to think this is too dumb. Michael's looking at his friends and saying, mm, yes. And if you're really bad at science, can I apologize as well? Because you think, I haven't got a clue what you're talking about. So this is a really interesting... So as I'm preparing this, Naomi says to me, oh, I'm not really interested in this. So it's good that she's on kids' work this week. And other people said, oh, that sounds really interesting. So we're going to do, has science buried God? So this is the sort of questions you get about around, around science. Uh, if we'd had loads of cards in, these are the sort of questions. Isn't believing the Christian faith anti-science? You cannot believe things that science cannot prove. That's an interesting one. We'll look at that one. Hasn't the Big Bang and evolution made belief in the Creator superstition and so-called miracles like the virgin birth and that kind of stuff? So those are the sort of questions. We're not going to tackle each one as we go because, you know, I don't work that way. I'm kind of much more of a random sort of speaker. But we'll kind of get to those. Now, it's interesting. I went to see uh, the film uh, The Theory of Everything. Who's seen that film, The Theory of Everything? Harry... So, plot spoiler: he does end up in a wheelchair. <laughs> it's about the life of. <laughs> oh no, that's it. Yeah, it's about the life of Stephen Hawking, who's a cosmologist. Uh, obviously, it was it was at, uh, Cambridge at the time. But that's a fact. That's knowledge, history. So there'll be no history if you're saying actually science is the only way you can know anything. Then there'll be no history. Um, there'd also be no law. You couldn't ever take someone to court and put them in a courtroom and say, how do we know that this is true or not? You couldn't do that. Because actually you couldn't do an experiment or a te- repeatable experiment in a lab to show who somebody, somebody did it. You couldn't do a repeatable experiment to say, did Jesus really die on the cross? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? You couldn't do an experiment to know uh, uh, what happened the other week in Paris. You couldn't do an experiment for that. So are we saying that we rule that out. Actually, you, you, you can't really do an experiment to, 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 to know what's right and wrong. So morality's gone, if, he's, if we agree with Bertram Russell. And actually, you can't even believe really, really important things like this. Oh. Sorry, it's a photo from an iPhone of my wife and I. You can't do science to prove that I got married on the 21st of... You'll be shocked now. 21st of December, 19... 19- Ninety-one. I know some of you are thinking 80, <laughs> 1991, you can't do a science experiment, so there's, there's no personal experience, there's no history, there's no literature, there's none of that, you can't actually do anything like that. And in fact, it's, it's interesting that, well let me just, Bertrand Russell is actually making a, can you test his statement by science? Let's go back to Bertrand Russell. Can you test Bertram Russell's statement by science? Michael is nodding, so I feel good. Okay, can we test that by science? Can we test his theory? In a lab, with science. He's a philosopher, that gives you a clue. You can say yes or no at this point. No, why not? Because it's a matter. He's making a philosophical statement, isn't he? He's making a a statement. So by his own account, what he's saying isn't true. (laughs) Everyone's like, I'm not getting this, but no. <laughs> do you see what I'm saying? You can't test that by science. It's either a ma- it's a matter of belief. It's a philosophical statement. So, so interestingly, so so when we talk about science, we, we're really thinking, well, what what does science talk about? What doesn't it talk about? So let's, for example, ask the question, "What is love?" Um, if you Google it, you get a song by who's it? Hadaway. Yep, Hadaway. Thank you. You're quiz night. Yeah, you get Hadaway, but that's. But if you go down and Google it yourself, you go down and you find actually in in October uh, 2012, The Guardian asked this question, what is love? It said that what is love is the most Googled statement um, on on Google in 2012. I don't know what it would be now. And it asked this question in The Guardian, what is love? And it had five theories on the greatest emotion of all. Now, I'm going to use four because I couldn't understand a word of what the psychoanalyst said. I read it and read it I thought, have no clue what you're talking about. So we've only got four here. But the the scientific explanation is love is chemistry. They might say, oh, it's emotional chemistry. But actually what they're saying, the scientists, is it's really an interaction of the chemical hormones and the nerve cells in your brain. There's no such thing as love. It's just chemicals and nerve cells. That's what the scientists would say. The The philosopher they asked said this, love is a passionate commitment. The novelist said, love drives all the great stories, including the big, big story of the Bible. And the Catholic nun says this, love is more more easily experienced than defined. Yet enfleshed in the life of another, it results in acts of generosity, kindness, and self-giving. Now, which of those is true? They're all true. They're all actually looking at love from a different point of view. So if you said to your, if you have a partner, uh, you know, a wife, a husband, uh, or you're going out and it's all good, and you say, let's kiss, you wouldn't say to them, do you want to exchange microbes and carbon dioxide with me? <laughs> you wouldn't say that, would you? You'd say, well, let's kiss because there's, it just feels good. And you, the part, your partner wouldn't say, no, but it's just all chemicals and hormones, there's no such thing as love. <coughs> And it's really interesting because actually you've got to understand what science is really doing. So here's here's this this picture I took on uh, with the snow. Did you enjoy the snow? I got straight up on the hill with my dog, which I can do in my flexible kind of job, walk my dog. This was the snow on Wednesday. Uh, Quite thick, wasn't it? eh? Pretty good. Now, obviously, what you can't tell from that picture is what? You can't tell how hot or cold it was. You can kind of make a little guess, can't you? Why? Why? there's some snow on the ground, but actually by three hours later, it had all gone. So you can't really know that actually, was it below freezing or not? And you can't, what else can't you know? You can't know did I, that I felt great that day. How exciting to walk in the snow like a big kid. My dog was all over the place. It was just lovely. I didn't even pray. I just enjoyed the snow. Sorry about that. But you know, you can't pick up emotions because it's almost like science is, is, is asking one thing. It's like a camera does one thing and a microphone does another thing. And actually asking a camera to be a microphone and a microphone to be a camera, or saying, well, actually, because I can't, pick up the, I can't find the sound on this picture, there was no sound. It was quiet. But actually, I could record with a microphone. You could say, "What was it? Was, couldn't you see anything? And science is only doing one thing. It's only focusing on, on, on this. And this is where I step on dangerous ground because I'm going to define what science is about. But science is designed to record natural causes... It's another thing to say that uh, what it records is the only reality. One, uh, one philosopher said, it, science is like looking for your keys under the lamppost because it's easy to see the keys there. Imagine you lost your car keys, you were out in town, you lost your cars, car keys, you're going to say, well, I'll look under the lamppost because the light is good there. And actually, and, and it's, it's saying, well, actually... All, all the lampposts, I'll just look in the area that the lamppost shines light on. As if there's no reality outside of that. And, that's, and, and saying that, that science is the only answer, or science has got the only stuff, isn't true. So actually, it's not true that, that faith and science are, are, are enemies. So a lot of early science was based on the fact that actually God was rational. A lot of the early uh, scientists were actually both theists. They believed in God as well. Uh, but, but actually, but it's interesting when we talk about love. Nobody, actually, I, I thought nobody wrote a book called The Love Delusion. But actually, I googled it and there is a book called The Love Delusion. And actually, there's a copy of the picture. It's actually by this guy called John Carter. And he says, love is not like Hollywood. Love, the love delusion. But most of the, the book you've probably heard is God delusion. So nobody says, love is dangerous, irrational and delusional. We base our, so much of our life on this thing called love that science is just uh, chemicals and emotions. Emotion. But actually, when it comes to God, scientists suddenly feel that they've got opinion, they've got the right to say. So Richard uh, Dawkins is a biologist, but he feels he can make pronouncements about stuff that are really much beyond biology. And he says that, that, that actually believing in God is dangerous and irrational and delusional. So really, what, let's look now and say, okay, let's just look at two approaches to how the world might be. So that, that, that was answering, It's science answering every question? Well, it's clearly not true. We all, none of us, so people say to you, like on the Alpha course or whatever, they say, I live my life by science. People have said that to me. But, but you say to them, do you love anyone? And immediately they, 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 they make decisions based on things that are not scientific. They make decisions based on their beliefs. They make decisions on their philosophy. They make decisions on their background on their history. They make all those kind of decisions. And they don't base it on science. So actually, sometimes when people say, oh, my life is based on science, actually, there's no such thing as a life based on science. We all know that there's wider things like literature and music and other things that that inform and uh, give us uh, truth. Okay, so let's just take two worlds, two views of how to world Assume there's two. One that's got the Christian view that's got there is a God. So the Christian view would be there's a creator, there's an eternal, infinite Uncreated, so it doesn't, so questions about by definition God doesn 't have a creator, so a question is like who, cre- who created God by definition, God is uncreated, so eternal infil- uncreated, rational that means he's, he, he thinks, does things in order, good and loving, who is the foundation they actually theologians call it the ground of but I thought you wouldn 't understand what that is is the foundation for the existence of everything in everything there 's this God who 's infinite loving, kind, eternal, good, and he is the the, the cause of everything He creates everything that, that 's what the kind of Christians would believe now what the, the atheists believe this that the being that we call God does not exist and never has, and everything we see is a, is a result of undirected undirected that means there 's no in No designer, no person, no personality, no kind of pattern, undirected, just random forces acting through chance and time. So basically those are the two worlds that people see the world. These are God created it, or it's undirected forces. And I would say if you talk to most people in Cheltenham, they would say, oh yeah, I don't believe there is a God, it's all undirected forces. But what I want to do is raise four questions that might make them think... Ah, maybe it's not so clear-cut. Because remember what um, Richard Dawkins says, any rational person is going to come to that point of view. We used to be superstitious and believe in God and Creator, but now with rational and sensible, we're going to realise there's no such thing. So the first one uh, is, uh, I need to just quote my source here. So Andrew Wilson, who wrote, these are my books that I've used, Andrew Wilson wrote this book. If whoop. Not you, Andrew. It's the real famous Andrew Wilson. If God, then what? So it's a simple book on what's called apologetics. So he, he uses these four points, so that's where I got them from. This is a good one by Tim Keller. We always, always always a good one, Tim Keller. The Reason for God, he talks, he's got a chapter about science. And this one is an interesting one where I got my title from. God's Undertaker, Science Buried God by uh, Professor John C. Lennox, who's a mathematician at Oxford. So we're impressed with him. Okay, church leaders, mathematician at Oxford. You know, you can see what you're going to get. Okay, so the first, the first thing then is the existence of something out of nothing. Let's just work this one. The atheist's idea is that 15 billion, might be less, might be more, might be 13.7, but let's not fight over the odd billion. Uh, 15 billion years ago, suddenly, and for no particular reason, and without any outside agency, the universe exploded into being with a big bang. That's what the atheists believe. Now, it's interesting that, that science, way back, actually believed that the universe was always there. They believed the universe was eternal. And people like Stephen Hawking and others actually, and when they saw how the universe was expanding and looked at how light moved and how you measure it, it's called the redshift, and all that kind of stuff, they realized oh, the universe is expanding. So maybe it, it, it had a, a beginning and they worked back to this idea and Stephen Hawking, in the film talked uh, about his PhD where he says it all started from this singleton point of, of mass, this kind of dense point of mass that exploded, like, like you get in the middle of a black hole. That's what they talk about in the movie. And so the idea was that, you know, 25 million years ago, there was nothing. 20 million year, billion, billion years ago, there was nothing. 15 billion years ago, there was nothing and then, bang, suddenly, Everything explodes into being. Uh, my friend Andrew Wilson has called this, um, he calls it the virgin birth of the cosmos. Now I don't know if you, uh, if you ever talk to somebody and say, oh, I can't believe in Christianity because the virgin birth. How ridiculous that, that, that Jesus could be born with just a woman without a bloke. It must be a lie, it must be a con, it can't possibly happen. You know, babies don't just come out of nowhere Imagine Mary trying to explain, look, I never slept with anyone. Well, yeah, right. Babies don't just come out of nowhere. Peter it's a virgin birth. God just did it. And everyone goes, you stupid people. How can you believe that? Andrew Wilson says, but atheists believe in what's called the virgin birth of the cosmos. It just came out of nowhere. I didn't know what happened. <laughs> it just came out of nowhere. Bang. Undirected, no, nothing else happening, and out it goes. We do this big explosion, and out it comes. And, um, and it's the virgin birth of the cosmos. So, and in one sense, you think, well, is that really reasonable? Is that really reasonable to think, to think that all that we see just came from this single point of matter... You've got asked, well, where did the matter come from? And where did the energy come from? And, and you start to get, well, there's multiple universes, or it's like a bellows, it's going in and out, and then contracting, and you get all these, kind of, all these different ideas to say, well, actually, we're not going to let God into the corner here, under our lamppost, We're not going to let God in and say, well, God might have said, let there be light. We're saying, actually, we can't have him. So the Christian idea is basically what God said let there be light. Bang. And there was light. Whether you believe in the big bang or not, that's what happened. It says, in the beginning God created the heavens. It's quite easy, isn't it? In one sense, it's quite sensible. You think, well, it's a big jump to believe in God. But it's a really big jump to believe that the cosmos just happened like bang. Just came out of nowhere. It's a big jump. Now, it's interesting. I thought I'd put some gospel ideas in this, which means that we're really going to raise some time. What about the existence of, of something out of nothing? I think there's a gospel kind of thing in there as well. Because when you become a Christian, you, you, it, this is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4 6. He says, For God who said, Let there be light, let light shine it in the darkness, in other words, its creation, bang, or how God speaks it by his word, made his light, we're talking about the truth of the Jesus, shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. That's how you become a Christian. God does it out of nothing. Almost. You say, where did that come from? He births you out of nothing. He does this, whoa, amazing thing out of nothing. And actually, it's interesting. So so what we say about the universe helps us to understand the gospel story. So that's the first one. How did it all come out of nothing? Your atheist has got to answer that question. The next one is, is, um, don't put it up. Anyone guess the next one? You probably won't, will you? Because I'm just trying to think. So you're just asking yourself, am I engaged in this process at the moment? That's really what I'm doing right now. Okay, next one is existence of order out of chaos. So this is what the atheists believe, give or take. From the moment of chaos at the Big Bang, imagine you set an explosion in here. You say, right, we're going to put a bomb in here and we're going to explode everything. And we'll come back next week and it'll be better. be more organized, better. Everything will have gathered together. Chairs will afford themselves. Yeah. So that's the kind of thing that, that from the moment of chaos at the Big Bang, with only time and chance and undirected forces operating, the universe developed complex, ordered galaxies, stars, planets, living cells, and you and I. If you've got a child or you've got a teenager, and they said to you, you said, tidy your room. And they said, well, no, I'm not going to tidy my room. Tidy your room. You are going to tidy your room. And they said, no, just leave my room. And the forces, undirected forces of chance and time will tidy my room for me. You know it's, ju- you know it's not going to work, don't you? Because actually, without getting too complicated, actually, everything doesn't gather itself together. Everything spreads itself out. Second law, third dynamics. there's a big discussion about it. I'm that Michael and others would say, well, it's really about heat and it's not really about other things. But let's not hold that. But the whole idea is that order doesn't, order doesn't come from chaos unless somebody orders it. If you leave your garden, as I like to do, it doesn't suddenly bunch nice hedgerows and, and flower beds and stripes on the lawn. It doesn't, does it? It creates a different kind of order that God has put in place called... Uh, well, we won't even get to that. I was going to do a bit of biography, but we're all short of time. But you know that, actually, the natural order of things, that things don't, the order doesn't, order doesn't come from chaos naturally. If we left this building with undirected forces of chance and time, it would gradually fall down. You know, you go to Rome and the Colosseum, that's what happens. Sometimes it's blown up by invading armies. This might happen in Cheltenham, who knows. But generally, this building would fall down if they didn't maintain it. Because actually, it's chaos, disorder is the natural flow of the universe. (laughs) But actually what the atheists are saying, no, 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 order comes out of everything. We just have this big explosion and suddenly everything gathers itself together. Planets and stars gather themselves together and uh, chemicals gather themselves together and make complicated cells and cells gather themselves together and make me. How amazing. We obviously, it's easy as a Christian because you can say, well, actually God did it all but that's what we're doing. But it seems incredibly unlikely. The Christian idea is that God finally balances the forces in the universe. They're not undirected balances them for the conditions to form all those things I've mentioned about. This guy, Francis Collins, is a, a member of what the project called the Human Genome Project. He's now a, an advisor for Barack Obama on science, so you can make your judgment on him. But he said this, uh, he believes in evolution, but he's a Christian. Let's not have that debate right now, time will allow me, but let's just look at this order out of chaos, what he says about that. He says, when you, look at the when you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if it knew we were coming. It's this idea of the cosmic welcome mat. God's put this mat out that says, welcome home. Here's your house i made for you. He says there are 15 constants that have precise values, and if any one of these constants was off by even one part in a million, or one part in a million million, or a trillion, uh, the universe we see would not actually come into being. Not, matter would not be able to coalesce, there and there'd be no galaxies, stars, planets, and peoples. Now, imagine if you went to Las Vegas. I don't know, is anyone into roulette? You can confess. I know some of you guys are into poker. But if you were into roulette and you went to Vegas and you said, right, okay, uh, we're going we're gonna to have a game of. A roulette. I, I, how, many, how many numbers is it? 36 numbers? I don't know how many numbers are. You know how it works, don't you? You kind of send the ball around. And it goes... Boom. Yeah! You know, you watch the Bond firms. They win all the time, don't they? Obviously, everybody I know who plays roulette, so millionaire loaded because it's just so easy, is it? One in 36, easy. Now, imagine you had a wheel that had on it something like the forces within an, an atom... To hold it all together or make it all fall apart, and that had a million numbers. And you spin the wheel, you send the ball around, and it's a massive wheel. Pew. Yes, amazing! One in a million chance. You say to the casino, "On a payout." He says, "Wait on, buddy. You got to do that 14 more times." So off you go again. Force of gravity. Oh, amazing, it lands again, one in a million, whoa. So we've now got what you can do the maths, you add the, the noughts and you get how much, it's one in a billion then, isn't it? One in a billion chances that happens. And you say, hey, the TV cameras come and the papers are interviewing. you say, this is amazing, one in a billion. You So no, we've got another 13 to go. You do it again, you do it again. And they, every time, lands on the number. You come and you've done it 14 times and it's like uproar, it's on all American TV, or, or the kind of gambling channels in the UK are showing it. I don't know, I'm not really into that. I'm really off my, off my notes here. But, <laughs> but imagine you came to the last num- the last wheel. It's called the cosmological constant. Don't worry about that. But it's about how things do- how quick the, g- the galaxy expands. or how- It's got to be just right. Because if you get it wrong one way, g- everything just goes... Whew. You just all float away. All the stuff in you would float away. Which would be nice for some of us. Uh, or in another way, everything just collapses in. So you've got to get this number right. And actually it's one... With 60 zeros. Now the number of atoms in the universe is about one with 120 zeros. Maybe, whatever, but it's lots. But imagine you've got this roulette wheel and it stretches out into the far reaches of the galaxy, uh, of, the, of the universe. 30 billion light years. You know, you've got to be really strong to get the ball to go around. It goes off beyond Pluto. <laughs> Away are the balls shaking around, out of the galaxy, into, into the Andromeda. It's whoa, 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 And it comes back. Yes! Misses by one. That's it. No universe. You've got to go again and you've got to spin the four, 15 wheels and you've got to land every single ball. That is the chances we're talking about. It's more than twice the number of atoms in the universe. That's the chances of all these things being balanced. But the, the atheist says, no, it just happened. The order of order of course, what's the gospel idea? The gospel idea is at the cross, Jesus takes the darkness of sin and disorder of human sin and brings new order to it. He, he, he brings order out of chaos. That's what God does. That, that sin brings disorder and decreation and scatters stuff around and messes up lives and explodes lives apart but, but, but the gospel brings lives together it brings wholeness that's what, what Jesus, is, Jesus is doing so God says let there be order out of chaos and shows that can be done but the, the atheist says well it's just blind chance isn't it a couple more you with me so far? so the universe happening by chance out of nothing The universe has been finally balanced. We could go again. I could set up another 20 wheels, actually, called the rare earth hypothesis, and we could spin the wheel again for the earth being the right size, having water, having near a sun, blah, blah, blah. We could do all that again. But we think, no, the the numbers get too big then, don't they? How about this for a big question? How does life come out of nothing, non-living matter? The atheist idea is if you have the right mix of chemicals and energy and chance and time, then life with living cells and complex DNA, that's the stuff inside the chemical code, inside the molecules, that'll happen. Yeah? Life comes out of nothing. You could, I, I, I'm struggling. I'm trying to be clever like Andrew Wilson. Let's call this the resurrection of the cosmos. Yeah. There's no life and life comes. Everyone says, you believe in a resurrection? Life comes out of nothing? He's dead. He's in the grave. No, he cannot have possibly died. He's dead in the grave and life came. That's rubbish. That's irrational. But that's what, you're an atheist, you believe that that's what comes out of chemicals. You just get these chemicals, water. And everyone says, oh, they did this experiment with a few chemicals and pinged it with a bit of electricity like lightning and bang, amino acids or whatever. I don't know quite what it is. But actually, the the, the idea that that would would happen is just crazy. Let's jump a slide, Andy. What do the Christian view? Not because we don't know it, but God says, let there be life. He says, "Actually, we do it. it." says Jesus says, "I am the resurrection and life." He says, "The F- the Father has given the Son to have life in Him." You get God, you get life. But if you got, if you haven't got God, how do you get life? This is a guy, a Genesis out of this quote in this book. Genesis Michael Denton says this: the break between the non living and the living world. So, in other words, you have got a nice crystal quartz crystal, all nicely arranged, or some kind of mineral, you know, animal, vegetable, mineral, you've got animal, sorry, you've got mineral, the the complexity between that and the vegetable or the animal is massive, it says, represents the most dramatic and fundamental discontinuities in nature. Between a living cell, just a little living cell, a bacteria, and the most highly ordered non-biological system, there's a chasm as vast and absolute as it's possible to conceive. How can you get from there to there? Ah, just chance and time. What you need is chance and time. But actually, I watched a program, and you must watch it. I watched a program. Google it. I think it's on. You can still find it. It's called The Secret Life of a Cell. It was done by BBC, and you can find it now. If you think, oh, this is interesting, go home and watch this program. It's not actual electron microscope footage but they've animated what you'd see through electron microscope and they show you inside this cell and it is absolutely mind-boggling all the different things that are in there kind of and it shows like proteins walking along other proteins and it's like what is this it's like a big city of stuff going on Uh, Bruce Albert as Americans good to call Americans because we're gathering a few he said this each cell is a veritable micro-miniaturized factory with thousands of inc- exquisitely sorry, functioning pieces of intricate molecular machinery made up of hundreds of thousands of millions of atoms. Inside your little cell are these incredibly complex little machines, like little power stations and, and little kind of zips that kind of unzip proteins, unzipping, and unzipping themselves, and things that walk along them. It's, it's mad, isn't it? Don't do A-level biology. When I did biology, I did A-level biology, and this is what we drew for a cell, a little circle the membrane, and another circle, the nucleus. And I thought, man, I understand a human cell. (laughs) Whereas now it's like, whoa! Massive. Crazy. Just these complex machines inside. How do you get them? They're more complex than any human machine. Right in the middle. And then in the middle of the middle, there's this code Made of four chemicals. That, that's actually so complicated that each cell's got like six foot of it. Imagine how we just take a cell from Joshua and then just stretch it out. All the information, like this big long DNA code, six foot in each cell. And it's like this code in the middle of the, the cell that says tells a cell what to do. Be a piece of beard. <laughs> how does the how does the, how does the cell know to be beard? I don't know what beard is like. Just read the code. <laughs> uh, have you watched the, the code breaker thing, the, the, the film about, what's his name? The imitation game, the guy that breaks the, the code, the, 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 the kind of German Enigma code, imitation game. And they have to build this really complicated machine 69, billion different com- 69 million different combinations, and they, they have to break the code. And actually, they break it by reducing the number of them. Whereas, actually, the code inside your cell to tell your cell what to be is much, much more complicated infinitely more complicated than that. It's like Richard Dawkins, who wrote The God Delusion, he said this, what lies at the heart of every living thing is not the spark of life. It's not some mystical thing called the spark of life. He says it's information. It's words, it's instructions. Think of a billion discrete digital characters. If you want to start understanding life, think about digital technology. So my question, Richard, is how did that code get in there? You know, to have a code, you have to have a code writer. And you have to have a, thank you, GCHQ, code breaker. You have to have those. How did that code get in there? How did those chemicals know what to do? How did they know how to read it? Oh, it's just digital technology. It came in there. It just happened. That jump to make organized life, to make the, the cell with a nucleus, is like the mass. It says it's bigger than the universe coming into being. It's so complicated. What's the gospel idea of this? Life from death. Well, we know it, don't we? The gospel idea is that he who raised Christ from the dead also gives life to your mortal bodies. God gives life. He brings order out of chaos into your life. He brings things that are not as though they were. That's That's what Abraham says about God. He calls things that are not as though they were. He speaks them into being out of nothing. And he brings life where there's no life. Your life might think, you might think, oh, this has nothing to do with science, but actually your, your life, if you encounter God, he brings life, where there's only chaos and unravelling and death. There's only inorganic stuff that does nothing for you. Money. God brings life. You who are dead in your sins. God's made you alive. God brings life. That's what he does. I'll do one more and then we'll land this down. You with me so far? Okay, so the next one is the idea of human consciousness. I don't know who said this, I think therefore I am. Does anyone know? Descartes, Descartes. Descartes, I think therefore I am. The fact that he thinks is amazing. The fact that you know who you are, that you think, that you process, that you can take in information, that you're aware of yourself, that sense of human consciousness, that sense of that you're you, where did that come from? It's okay, let's say we've made all these really, really complicated cells. We've got to join them together, join them together to make Josh. Lord, help us. <laughs> to—you know, They're going to make these complicated people. And then Josh is going to not just walk around as a lot of chemicals and, and, and nerve endings. He's going to be aware of himself. That is a huge thing. We haven't time really to develop it. But the I, I, atheistic idea is that human mind is, and consciousness is a result of, as I said, of like love, of interactions with chemicals and hormones just developed through biological evolution. It's good to love people because it makes your species survive and that creates a chemical pathway in your brain that just makes you think, I'm in love. Christian idea is that God's a rational person, personal being. He's he's relational, that we're made to know him and to image him. Let me just say this as a sideline and we really will get this down. It's interesting that we're made to, to, to be inquiring, aren't we? The very fact that we do science, the very fact that Stephen Hawking's body can be shutting down, but yet his brain's is Where does that come from? But yet the fact that we can think, and we can calculate, and we can understand. In fact, I was watching something, and it said that the world we live in, in terms of astronomy, is like a great place to live. Because we're right in the right position on the edge of the galaxy, this is Mark and his telescope, we really must go out and do some telescope looking but the fact if you're in some places that the stars in the sky would be so bright you couldn't you couldn't do any astronomy because you're so close into the center of the galaxy or you'd be we're just nicely it's almost like we're god has built us on the spiral arm of this galaxy that where where we can look out and clear skies yeah, it's great when they turn the lights off, isn't it? You know, uh, in fact, I um, we were around at uh, Paul and Molly's for a very nice dinner. Thank you. And on his phone, he had a picture, and I thought, I said, "Is that where you went in Colorado?" I said, "No, it's just a screensaver." But it was all these stars, this wonderful expanse of stars over a snowy hill. And when you when you look at the stars, when you do that, it, it makes you do what the psalmist says. This is Psalm eight, Lord. Our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the sun, the moon and stars that you've set in place, what are people that you're mindful of them or human beings that you care for them? But the gospel is that, whoa, this God, you're the God who made all this vast expanse. You just breathed it, spoke it into space. But yet you care about us. You care about us. It makes you feel small. It makes, when I'm out in a big starry night, I think, well, I would, wouldn't I? But I think, isn't God amazing? I don't think, isn't chance and undirected forces, aren't they fantastic? I don't do that. But interestingly, let me just finish with, with two, one big quote from the Bible and, a, and then a, a little fun one, perhaps. Um, it says, actually, so why? Why does Stephen Hawking say, actually, it's much more rational to believe in, a, believe in the, the random undirected forces and chance and time? Why does he believe that? That's more rational than believing in God. Clearly, he must think his wife, Jane Hawkins, they're now divorced. But why does he think she's irrational? Why does he think she's superstitious and out of date? Why does he thinks all these random chances, That's the, that's really thinking? Paul in Romans 1 suggests a reason. I'm not saying it's true for everybody who doesn't believe that God's a creator, but this is what he says. And it's pretty scary, but this is what he says. People suppress the truth. Says It says in, it says in, in Peter, he says, The time will come when scoffers will say, well, Where is this? coming that God has said. Where's this coming? Everything carries on as it ever has. It's called uniformitarianism if you do geology. Every, every process just carries on like it has. Where's this creation that he speaks about? It says it in 2 Peter. Peter's a fisherman, but he picks it. Materialist to evolution. He said, look, where is it? And, and, and Paul says it here, doesn't he? He says, people suppress the truth. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature, Paul's not lying, the Bible's not lying, have been clearly seen being understood from, say it with me, what has been made. So people without an excuse. There's something in us that doesn't want to believe in a God. Most of the people, if you do big objection discussion with them, will say, actually, I just don't care. I'm just not interested. I'm just not bothered. Let's finish with um, a guy called Douglas Adams who wrote The uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And he's quoted in by Richard Dawkins in The God Delusion. I should have done this as an animation because my punchline is ruined, isn't it? It says, Isn't it enough to see that the garden's beautiful? Well, we all agree, don't we, humans? When we look at creation, we think it's beautiful. It's ordered. There's something about it. It's a garden. Without having to believe that there are fairies at the bottom of the garden, too. Douglas Adam thinks, Because I believe in a creator, I'm believing in fairies at the bottom of the garden. But actually, when we look at gardens, it does or should make us believe in Godness. For more information, visit our website at Godfirst.org.uk.